Let's open up the Bible together. Let's open up the scriptures together. Uh, and we're in the book of Nehemiah. And today we come to Nehemiah uh, chapter 13. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. If you're in that camp in the middle of the Old Testament, then you are, you're, you're, you're nearby. We're in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now Christ will not fail, as we just sung. He, he is a sure foundation, a certain foundation on which to build our lives, in whom to put our faith, and we come to know this through the Word. So once again, church, we we return to the Word, we return to the Scriptures, we return to God's Word because we want to hear from God. We come to Nehemiah chapter 13 today. This is the final message in this series as we've been trekking through this particular story, the story of Nehemiah. Next week, we'll turn in a new direction, same book. Same Bible, uh, different uh, genre. We'll be turning to the New Testament. We'll be looking at some words of Christ. We'll be leaning into the Sermon on the Mount. And so I look forward to that time together, church, in the days ahead. But for today, we're in Nehemiah chapter 13. And as is our practice here, as you find your place in the Bible, we invite you to join me standing, uh, whether in body or in spirit, uh, for the reading of God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 13. I'll, I'll begin reading in verse 1 and we'll kind of move through uh, this chapter, not reading every verse, but uh, I'll give you a heads up on that. Verse 1. Uh, on that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, Turn the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Verse 6. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service, had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? And I called them together and stationed them at their posts. Verse 15, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads, and they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Skip down to verse 23. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons. 
or for yourselves? Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Verse 29, remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. Would you pause with me as we pray? Oh, Father, speak to us now, instruct us now. Lord, guide us now by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit through the reading and proclamation and application of your word for the glory of your name, the good of your church, the growth of your kingdom. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We may be seated. Well, Nehemiah is the guy writing here. He's the guy that's concluding this the story. And this guy, is, he's a leader. He's a leader. He's known for being a, a leader. He's a good leader. He's a leader who trusts in God and who seeks God's God's wisdom. He, he's not bashful. You see that right here. He's not bashful or skittish, but he's quite bold. He's a man of, of prayer and a man of action. He prays. In fact, if we were to look back at this story, the story of Nehemiah begins and it ends with prayer. Nehemiah praying to God, crying out to God. He prays and then he acts. He confronts sin right here among God's people, including corruption at the very highest levels of leadership. You see, these people that we're reading about, that he's confronting, these people who've been singing and celebrating, that's what we saw last week, they were singing and they were celebrating God's faithfulness in leading them to complete the, the rebuild of the wall around Jerusalem. Remember that? We, talk, we, we read about two large choirs. We even sang antiphonally in here for a moment to reflect what they were doing. They've been celebrating. They've been singing. These people who've been submitting themselves to the word, We've come across a couple places in this story where they read the Bible. They read the law of God as a gathered company of believers and they read it for hours. Been submitting themselves to the word. And here's the people who've been committing themselves to obey God. We saw that back in chapter 10 when John preached for us. We saw from that chapter that they have made some promises to God to be faithful to God. And now we quickly see that they've begun to wander from God. The rescued people of God so quickly began to drift from loving God. And the drift began as their spiritual leaders ignored God's word. You see, leadership matters. It matters. It matters significantly. Faithful leadership promotes faithfulness among God's people. Faithful leadership promotes faithfulness among God's people. One is not a guarantee of the other, but it's sure going to have an impact on it, which means uh, the flip side is also true. Unfaithful leadership promotes unfaithfulness among the people. And that's exactly what's happening here as Nehemiah shows up. When the cat's away, the mice will what? Play. The cat's away, the mice will play. Well, the cat's away. Nehemiah, that is, he's, he's away. That's what we read about here. The governor is gone. 
Remember, he came to Jerusalem as the temporary governor. Let's, let's recall the story just a bit. Nehemiah, who's the cupbearer of the king, Artaxerxes, uh, he hears that Jerusalem, the city of God, is in shambles. The city's walls are broken down. Uh, the, the homes are destroyed. Few people are living there. He's broken over the condition of God's city, and he prays to the Lord. He cries out to, go, to God. And then at the right time, he confronts his boss, the boss. He confronts the king. And he says something like, uh, if it pleases the king, your majesty, would you let me go to the city of my ancestors and, and rebuild the city? The king responds with a question, how, how long are you going to be gone? When you coming back, Nehemiah answers chapter 13, verse 6, and he returns to the king. We read about right here, 12 years later. I guess we don't really know if he's gone back to the king sometime before this, but he tells us on a more permanent basis, he returns to the king, to Susa, where the king's palace is, some 12 years later in the year 433 B.C. You know, it's one thing to ask for a leave of absence and be told, uh, sure thing, but don't come back, right? It's quite another thing to ask for uh, a leave of absence and to hear, okay, when are you coming back? I want you back. When are you going to be back? Nehemiah's loved by the king. He's wanted in the palace, a faithful servant, and so he returns, as he said he would, to the king, to Susa. But while in Susa, the condition in Jerusalem goes to pot. Like the people forget God's goodness and they begin to drift from him. They're prone to wonder. They're prone to leave the God they love. And if we're honest, church, we got to admit what's true of them is likewise true of us. We are prone to forget God's word. We are prone to forget God's word. We're going to see this morning evidence of of sin, of wandering away from God in the lives of the Israelites, ancient Israel in the 5th century B.C. And we see it as a window into our own proclivities, our own sin. What's true of them is true of us. We are prone to forget God's word out of sight, out of mind. And I, I learned a few years ago, not too long ago, when we bought a newer car uh, for Ashley, for my wife, uh, that I have a tendency to drift as I drive. Like, I didn't know this at all. I thought I was a pretty good driver. But then I noticed pretty quickly the first time or two I drove uh, her uh, swanky minivan that as I got uh, close to one of those lines in the road, the thing would start shaking and, and beeping at me, saying beep, 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 as if a ticking time bomb is going off in that car. I thought I was a pretty good driver, but apparently I'm, I'm prone to drift. As I I drive. And the reality is the same thing is true. I don't know if you're prone to drift as you drive. But we're all prone to drift. And our relationship with the Lord. We're prone to drift away from the Lord. Sometimes a slow drift. Perhaps most often a, a slow drift. From a vibrant walk with the Lord God himself. And other times an intentional neglect. This isn't the first time here that people gather. Verse 1 to hear God's word. They've come together. To hear the word. And each time they come together to hear the word of God, they experience conviction and correction on the basis of the word. 
Church, you see, when we open the Bible, we ought to anticipate correction. In fact, every time that we open the Bible, I think we ought to anticipate correction because our proclivity to sin suggests there are always areas of our lives where we're not living for God. But as we hear the word, God's spirit works to convict us where we're wrong so that by his grace, our hearts might turn back to him. Brother or sister, welcome conviction as a sign of God's grace. Let's be a people who learn to welcome God's conviction, who welcome conviction as a sign of his grace. I, I, I think we have a tendency to think that conviction's a bad thing because it means that we're, we're, we're sinners. We are sinners. Conviction is, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a sign of God's grace, meaning he's not given up on us. A sign that he's still working to conform us to the character of his son, who is our Savior. Notice what happens when the people return to the word. Verse 3, when the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. And so here's what's going on here. They, they hear God's standard with open hearts. They listen to the word. And as a result, they commit to obey what they hear. And here, the particular call is to be separate from the Ammonites and the Moabites and others who worship false gods for the sake of of purity among God's people. This is uh, not uh, a racial motivation, but a theological one. We'll hear more about that in a few moments. They hear the word. They hear it once again, the word that they have forgotten And they aim to apply the word, upon hearing the word, to their lives. These same folks previously listened to the word and made some promises to God. Promises that are recorded and recounted for us in chapter 10 of this story. Listen to what they promised. Here's what they promised to God on that occasion. Uh, They promised not to marry foreigners. We're not going to marry foreigners. Uh, Number two, we're going to observe the Sabbath day. Not going to marry foreigners. We're going to observe the Sabbath day. Number three, they promised to give their tithes, their offerings in support of the temple ministry. That's what they promised God on oath, an agreement together before the Lord. We're not going to marry foreigners. We're going to observe the Sabbath day and we're going to give generously. We're going to tithe for the sake of ministry at the temple out of worship for the Lord. Well, the ink's barely dried on the page and it's these same three promises which the people have failed miserably to do. They're neglecting the temple ministry, verses 4 and following of chapter 13. They're profaning the Sabbath day, verses 15 and following. And they're marrying foreigners, verses 23 and following. They, they fail to keep their promises. I wonder, what about you? What about me? Have you ever failed to keep a promise? Have you ever failed to keep a promise? Have you ever failed to keep a, a promise to God? Have you ever promised something to God? God, I, I know I've been neglecting my time with you, but this week I'm, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to spend time with you every day. How'd you do? Have you ever failed on a promise to God, I dare say, church, their sins are a window into ours. Their tendency to dishonor God reflects the same sinful tendencies present in each of us. As you like these folks, we are prone to forget God's word and we are apt to neglect God's house. We are apt to neglect God's, God's house. 
Of course, God's house in Nehemiah's day was the temple. The the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. A very specific temple and place in which God chose to dwell among His people. That's why rebuilding and repopulating the city was such a big deal. A really big deal. This was the place. This was the place of, of sacrifice and of singing. This was the place of of festivals, of celebrations, of of confession of sin. This was the place for gathering in the company of God's redeemed to be near to God and to worship Him. And so upon the reestablishment of the city and worship therein, the people confidently said, chapter 10, verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. We're not going to neglect it. We will not neglect the house of our God. Like, we're going to do this. We're all in. 100% in. We're going to live and we're going to spend our lives for the sake of God's name. That's what they said. But sometime later, when Nehemiah shows up from going back to fulfill his obligations away in the palace of Artaxerxes, he shows back up and Eliashib, the priest, has welcomed Tobiah the Ammonite to stay in the courts of God's temple, to buy the, the Ammonite. Not only a foreigner who worships false gods, an idolater who doesn't worship Yahweh alone, he's welcome to stay in God's house, in the courts of God's house. But he's the ringleader of the Ammonites who are opposed. We saw him earlier in the story, opposed to the Israelites Worshipping the Lord God alone. He opposes the rebuilding of the temple and the walls around the city of Jerusalem. So Eliashib says to him, You know, this room over here, it's, it's, it's intended to be a storeroom for tithes, for offerings, for articles, for worship. But we, we could probably do without it. Like the temple's not all that busy right now. People aren't coming like they once did. You know what? We'll, we'll clear that room out. And you, you, can, you can have it. You can have it. To buy the, the Ammonite, given a room in God's house. God's room in God's house, given to an idolatrous enemy, all because Eliashib, verse 4, had too closely associated himself with one of God's enemies. And so Nehemiah shows up and he's furious. Text says he's greatly displeased. He's, he's furious, like Jesus in the temple courts. And so he begins throwing Tobias' stuff out into the streets. Get it out of here. He, he then learns that the Levites, whose ministry is to be supported by the people, have returned to the fields, their own fields, to make a living. Verse 11, so I rebuked the officials, Nehemiah says, and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Chapter 10, verse 39, we, we will not neglect the house of our God. Verse 39, uh, verse 11 of chapter 13, why are you neglecting the house of God? And he calls them together and stations them at their post. You see, they compromise their commitment to God. And as a result, as a result, idolatry returns and right worship fades. And of course, you, you know this, we, we no longer go to the temple. Like we don't make a trek every week to Jerusalem 
up on the mount, gather in a physical temple. We don't no longer go to the temple, but together with believers, fellow believers, with other Christians, we are the temple. So the Bible teaches, together, church, we are the temple of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, Paul says, he says, in Jesus, the whole building, and right here, he's not talking about a literal building, he's talking about the people of God, using building as a metaphor for the people of God. He says, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. He says, in him, in him, you too, you too, believers, you too, Gentiles, that's what he's saying here, you too, Ammonites and Moabites, you too, uh, Americans and Indonesians and, and Jews and Gentiles together, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. But here's the reality. Like ancient Israel, we too are apt to neglect God's house. To neglect gathering with the people of God as the temple of God. To hear and to sing and to celebrate and to give and to commit ourselves to the Lord. We are apt to neglect God's house. And we see here that we are inclined to ignore God's day. We are prone to forget God's word. We are apt to neglect God's house. And we are inclined to ignore God's day. Every day is the Lord's. But the Lord commanded his people to set aside one day in seven. For rest. And for worship. To remember God. Sabbath command is focused on, it's focused on remembering God, who He is, remembering God as creator and remembering God as redeemer, a weekly rhythm meant to set God's people apart from the world and to remind us who He is. But instead, these folks have succumbed to work, buying, selling, trading, rather than resting and worshiping on the Lord's day. So Nehemiah says, verse 17, I rebuked the nobles and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Promise number two, broken. And after Jesus' resurrection, uh, believers, Christians, Christ followers began worshiping on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we see a window into that. On the first day of the week, we came together. To break bread. Friends, let's be a people who gather on God's day. Let's be a people who come together in the company of God's people. Let's be a people who set apart a day to to worship and to remember God. To fix our gaze upon God. To hear from Him in the company of all of His people. For like our spiritual ancestors, we are prone to forget God's word. We are apt to neglect God's house. We are inclined to ignore God's day. And finally, we see here that we are tempted to compromise God's standard for marriage. We are tempted to compromise God's standard for marriage. So here's the final critique that Nehemiah levels against the Israelites. God's people are marrying men and women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, verse 23. And again, the issue here is not... Uh, racial or ethnic purity. That's not what this is about. Any foreigner could become part of God's people by turning in faith to Israel's God. For example, Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite, commended as an exemplary model of faith in the Lord, and yet a woman from Moab. But the issue here is theological fidelity. 
The issue is theological fidelity, faithfulness to God, an issue at stake as the first generation of kids, verse 24, no longer speak the language of Judah, no longer speak the Hebrew language, meaning not only will they forget the word, but they will never hear the word. They will never hear the word. They will never understand the word. Now, we could we could talk, certainly. We could and should on another day and occasion. We could talk about our own tendency to compromise God's marriage standard today. Certainly, we could and we should. We could talk about our tendency to compromise God's marriage standard, be it through cohabitation, fornication, rampant pornography, the celebration of homosexuality. We could go on and on until we're blue in the face. Because, as I trust you know, God's marriage standard has not changed. Even as the cultural winds have shifted exponentially in our day, God's marriage standard has always been one believing man and one believing woman committed to one another before God for life. You see, here's here's the deal. Why does this matter? Why is it a big deal? Here's the deal. The reason marriage matters so much, the reason it mar- marriage matters so much is that your life isn't just about your marriage isn't just about your marriage your marriage is not just about your marriage is a picture of the gospel it is a picture of god's faithfulness it is a picture of his covenant love it is a picture of his constant and forever faithfulness and love to his people and this is why we're told in the new testament second corinthians chapter six do not be yoked together with unbelievers Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? In other words, don't don't marry an unbeliever. Don't marry an unbeliever. Doesn't matter if they're from Israel, Ammon, Moab, Auburn, Alabama. Doesn't matter. Don't knowingly enter into a covenant relationship with one who doesn't worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, he says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So you're going to have a hard time bringing your kids up to know the Lord if your husband or wife has no interest in the Lord. So as we hear a text like this that seems so distant from us, it seems so foreign from us, we wrestle with these commands and the breaking out. What does it mean for us? Let's beware, church. Let's beware of our tendency to compromise God's marriage standard and where we've done so, where we've done so, let's repent and return to him. Let's repent and return to friend where you've forgotten God's word, where you've neglected God's house, where you've ignored God's day or compromised God's standard. Rend your heart and not your garments. Rend your heart. Be broken over your sin. Welcome the Spirit's conviction through the reading and hearing of His Word. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Return to the Lord. Return to Him. Why? For He is gracious. For He is gracious and compassionate. This is who He is. For He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He's patient 
and abounding in love, abounding in steadfast love, constant love, forever love, faithful love for his people. And he relents from sin and calamity. This is the God that we worship. This is good news for sinners. This is the God that this is the God of Nehemiah. And this is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, one who is patient with us whose spirit stands ready to convict us that we might be a people who return to him. So, friend, where you are sinning, return to the Lord. Where you are sinning, return to the Lord. That's the call. That's the invitation of the text, I think, for believers today. Where you are sinning, return to the Lord. Not if, but where. Where are you sinning? Where does your life reveal? Where does my life reveal that we're not reflecting God's goodness and his glory? Yeah, I think Nehemiah teaches us that the Christian life is meant to be marked by regular repentance and constant submission to the word in order that we might enjoy, that we might enjoy A right relationship, right fellowship with this God. The one who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, who relents from sending calamity. Friend, where might you need to return to the Lord? You see, if we confess our sins, some of you know this one. It's a good one to know. If we confess our sins, He, this God, He is faithful. He is faithful and just and will forgive us. It's a promise from the scriptures, from the Lord. If we confess our sins, if we own our sins and acknowledge them and confess them to the Lord, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from all sin, from all Guilt, the stain of sin. The reality is, according to the scriptures, we are unrighteous. Our lives are characterized by unrighteousness. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. In other words, we've sinned. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. You see, God says we've fallen short. We've fallen short, far short, far, far. We're sinners, but praise God for a savior. Praise God, friends, that John goes on and he says we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the father. We have one who is our representative. We have one who pleads our case Before God himself, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Unrighteousness, that's what we're characterized by. But righteousness is what Jesus is characterized by. Never sin, morally pure and perfect in every single way. The righteous one. He is our advocate. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. John says, and not only for our sins, believers, but also for the sins of the whole world. Friend, do you know the righteous one? Do you know the righteous one who gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for you and for me? Whose righteousness is graciously given to every sinner who trusts in him. Have you trusted in him? Are you trusting in him? 
Are you trusting in Jesus? Won't you trust in Christ today? Won't you give your heart to him and be reconciled to God and experience the joy of being his? Would you bow with me? Oh, Father, we thank you for your provision, your provision of an atoning sacrifice for our sins because, Lord, we are sinners who, like these people of whom we're reading, we are people who have fallen short, who have missed the mark, who have failed miserably. And yet, even so, you have provided a way in your Son for us to be right with you once again. And so, Lord, we acknowledge that we are indebted to your grace. Oh God, we are indebted to your grace Father, we pray that your grace would grip us, that your goodness would grip us, that we might repent and return to you. Father, lead us to you. Where we have sinned, where we are sinning, where we are not trusting you, Lord, stir us by your spirit to trust in you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.